Hello and welcome everybody, thanks for being here. Lucky episode 13. How are you? Had to take a week off for some things going on at home, just getting really busy with stuff, so glad to be back. And man, I'm glad I waited until today to start recording this episode because we got some big news. Later this episode, we're going to be continuing on our series about Zack's Imperial Fists. We are going to be talking about the new Militia release. We will continue with our heavy supports and talk about the Derrideo. And I also want to, well, right now I want to introduce you to something really special that's going on on Facebook. So if you are a listener of this podcast, it's probably fair to say that you are a person of a certain age. You probably take painkiller occasionally in the morning just to get out of bed. And, um, you know, there's a really good chance that you've entered a phase in your life where you have got more adult responsibilities along with your other fun stuff. And for a lot of us, that means kids. I don't remember exactly how I was introduced to this, but I was pushed towards or suggested uh, a page called the Dad Hammer Support Network. And it's a private group. Um, You have to join it, Uh, like a lot of other hobby pages you might be engaged in. But I just want to say it's one of like like doing it is one of the best things, uh, the best things that I could have done for myself um, to support my hobby and honestly just to support me. So it's called Dad Hammer. This is a group for wargaming dads with an aim to be in a place where you can express and talk about anything you do being a dad, whether it's simple questions about what to feed a baby or mental health struggles and you just need some people to talk to. This is a place where you won't be judged, raised back on your feet moving forward as a dad. You know, I have to say one of the things, and this is this has nothing to do with hobby for just a quick second, so feel free to shut off if you don't like hearing about feelings. One thing that I have noticed by and large with, uh, you know, the generation of, you know, millennials, elder millennials, is that a lot of us are coming to grips with the fact that there's a lot of things that we felt and experienced when we were younger that we didn't really get a chance to deal with or talk about. And we didn't necessarily deal with it or talk about it soon enough. And then we ended up in situations where we had to be the adult, be the parent, whatever. And that's not an easy thing to do. I have been an advocate for mental health issues, awareness of those things, talking about those things, anxiety, depression. Those are things that I've dealt with most of my life. And I think it's really important for people to talk about those things in general. I've lost friends who couldn't find a way to battle down those demons, oftentimes because they had to do it themselves on their own or they felt they did. And so I guess I just want to say a couple things there. First of all, if you're listening to this and you are having those feelings of self-doubt, it's, it should be very clear. I want it to be very clear here. You aren't alone. There are other people who are going through the same or similar things. And even if they aren't going through the same or similar things, there are people who care about you enough and want you to succeed and get through those things. If you are a war gamer <laughs> and you are a dad, and although it doesn't say anything about your mom hammer, but like I, I doubt anybody here would care. Regardless, check out this Facebook page because the posts on this page are so positive, so supportive, and then on and so honest and raw and vulnerable. People just really talking about the things that they're seeing, you know, whether it's struggle with their kids, struggle with their their goals, how things have changed since they've had children, and trying to understand what that means struggles with their spouses, like all sorts of stuff. But it's so positive and so honest. 
and it's been it's been a really good thing for me to read and scroll through as I as you know I, I go through my Facebook feed. I'm glad that all the people in this group and it's five and a half thousand members as of you know the time I recorded this have joined here and can see regular posts showing people being honest about their struggles and making an effort to talk about them, get through them, and then it's just the outpouring of support is wonderful. If you aren't a Facebook person and you don't really have an ax- way to access this thing, I'm sorry, but I just want you to know that you know I see you with the struggle you're having, and you know there are people in your community, in this larger wargaming community, who also understand that there are big problems that we all have to deal with, and and we we can't ignore those things. If you're on Facebook, check out Dad Hammer Support Network, even if everything's going great for you, because, man, it's so humbling to see and to experience all the things that other people are going through and to be able to offer support and encouragement uh, to those people. It's a really rewarding, positive thing. And honestly, it's exactly the kind of energy, vibe, and whatever that I think is so special about this community in general is the fact that we have, especially in the heresy community, we usually do a good job of supporting each other and being positive of each other and lifting each other up. And usually that's involving hobby and art and whatever else, but it doesn't have to be bound to those things, and it shouldn't be bound to those things. Dad hammer, do it. So next up, I want to talk about something entirely different. That last segment, it kind of got a little down, and I don't want it to consider that because I really do think uh, talking about those things and whatever is a positive thing. And on that same note of positivity... I had entirely forgotten that essentially it was the end of April and that we were told we were going to get this PDF by the end of April. So when I you know, got out of uh, my morning class and I got um, into passing time and I saw that I had uh, like a dozen notifications of people pinging me because this, this uh, PDF had dropped, I was so surprised. It was like Christmas. It was like accidental Christmas. Now, I'm not per se a militia player but one of the things that i really liked about the militia before was the fact that the rules seemed very clearly designed to encourage people to create their own models out of you know different army kits and whatever else and to really personalize it and that really for me exemplifies the concept purpose and whatever of you know this hobby so i can't i'm not going to really spend the time to go through everything right now And I am going to instead start, when I finish this episode, wrap this episode, I'm going to start doing more specific breakdown and just put it in small chunks on on YouTube uh, because I think that'd be easier. But I want to talk about a couple of things that I'm really excited about. So without further ado, here are uh, my top three most exciting things, moments from the Imperial Militia Army list so far. Number one, and I've already kind of mentioned it, is the fact that this is going to be, this list is going to be a kitbasher's dream. There are a lot of units in here that are seemingly specifically designed to be cobbled together, um, to be put together in different ways. The very design and flavor of the list has certain rules that suggest and put into the, the crunch that this is a cobbled together force. And so you have rules that really support. It's it's kind of like being an orc player. The the feel of the build of those models is connected to the lists, um, to the to the rules, to the, the crunch. 
And so the fluff and the crunch coming together in this way is really exciting. Let me give you one example of what I mean. So maybe I am projecting here a little bit, but I feel like of all the GW properties, the game that a lot of people would play but don't play, but everybody talks about is Necromunda. Uh, the models are fantastic. And by everybody, at least, at the very least, I mean myself, because I love the models. I played it a lot last summer. I'm hoping to get some more of that in this summer, because it was an absolute blast. The game is fun. The models and the kits are beautiful. All sorts of great stuff. It's an entirely different vibe from Wargaming, so we don't need to go into that right now. But, you know, one of the mantras of the Necromunda community is every model is a Necromunda model. And... Uh, that is true, but one of the things that's fantastic for me here is that at least some of those Necromunda models are definitely now Imperial Militia models. So one of the fast attack choices that you can get for the Imperial Militia list is an Imperialis Militia Cargo 8 Hauler Squadron. And the Cargo 8 Hauler is that big, round, like, tanker vehicle that was released with the Necromunda range, specifically for the Ash Wastes expansion or whatever else. Very Mad Max, very um, Road Warrior, post-apocalyptic, you know, sort of thing. And this this model is hilarious. And there's a lot of things here that we talk about. Um, we'll just go over it really fast and talk about how it exemplifies some of the things that are going to be that are just kind of fun about this this uh, this PDF. So the the cargo eight hauler it has movement ten. It has the ballistic skill three. Front armor, 12, side 11, and rear 10, so it's not tough. Only three hull points, and it has a transport capacity of 22, and it's 50 points. Now, there are no special rules in this thing. It is not an assault vehicle, just to point that out. Um, and it has one access point, which is on the back, okay? It also has the third line rule, which I'm going to talk about in a minute in the next section, but it's a rule that... Again, sort of hints at the, the way the militia is sort of cobbled together here. So you can have up to two additional cargo haulers for 40 points a model, which are a little bit cheaper. Um, and so what's interesting about that is that a vehicle that has one, no weapons, but two is in a squadron as a fast attack choice. Well, what does that mean? Well, so after we talk about the number of models in this unit, there's a note that says... Units embarking on a cargo 8 hauler that is part of a squadron must embark all of the models in that unit on a single model with the transport unit subtype. Selecting additional cargo 8 haulers for a squadron allows multiple units to be transported by the squadron, but does not allow those units to be spread across more than one model with the transport subtype. So you can essentially have a squadron of these vehicles hauling multiple units, but everything has to be in its own little bit. Now, you can take... A pintle-mounted heavy stubber or a grenade launcher for five points. You can also take dozer blades for five points, which you're probably going to take that one. Smoke launchers for five points. A hull-mounted hunter-killer missile uh, for ten points. Ballistic skill three, you may or may not want that. But then there's one more rule, is the armored container. An armored container reduces its transport capacity to 12 and gains the infantry transport rule but increases the side armor and rear armor by one up to a maximum of 12. So it'll be then front, side, 12, back, rear, 11. Additionally, a model of this upgrade may take up to two additional pintle-mounted heavy stubbers, and these models, these weapons may not be further upgraded. Okay, so this is, again, you know, getting towards the kit and explaining the kit a little bit. Now, 
a little bit of despair here because I think the cargo hate, cargo eight hauler, if you buy it, is like $100 for one of these things. So $100 model for a 50-point tank, questionable. But I would expect a lot of people to kit bash these things, put them together with basic trucks, whatever, slap them around. I just absolutely love the the idea of this vehicle being put in there. And um, it's just really fun. It's a fun model if you want to use it, but also just like the the silly, the, a little bit of the silliness of it. Transport capacity 22, but it's basically just a minivan. Um, I think it's really fun. The next thing that I really love is all of the providences. And it looks like without going through them entirely in depth, that there are still going to be a lot of providences for you to think about or talk about. So if you're unfamiliar with this term, if you didn't play Militia last edition, your Imperialis Militia Force Commander, who is your HQ choice, who may be mounted now, by the way. We'll have to talk about that in another episode. But uh, they have the rule, the provenance, and uh, the muster of worlds. And so what do those things mean? Well, muster of worlds means that if the detachment contains a Force Commander, then it may also possess up to two provenances. And those provenances are like special chapter traits, so to speak. And you can combine them together in different ways. So the provenances of war, no matter how many of the, no matter how many force commanders you have, you can still only ever have two provenances. But unless, you know, um, there's lots of different varieties that have them. So unless noted, the effects of any rules featured in the provenances description apply to any and all units in the same detachment as the force commander with a militia unit subtype. However, any units with a mechanized unit subtype may never benefit from the benef- effects of a provenance unless that provenance specifically states otherwise. So you've got things like sentinels, for example, that are mechanized, and so they would not benefit from these things. In addition, certain provenances may not be taken in combination or have other limitations, which are listed below. And then some of the provenances have extra options that you can add on top of those things. So what are a couple of those provenances? Well, I'll talk about one that I think a lot of people will look at first, and that is the Warrior Elite. All eligible units and models receive a plus one to their leadership characteristic to a maximum of nine. Imperialist militia levy squads in an attachment with this provenance gain the support squad special rule. And all Imperialist militia grenadier squads in an attachment with this provenance lose the support squad special rule. So a warrior elite. So this is demonstrating a militia that has been together for a while. This is an organized militia as opposed to something that's just kind of thrown together. So they got a better leadership and they can organize more clearly with slightly more elite units showing up as troop spots that don't have the support squad rule. There's lots of other ones that are like this and have different impacts, whatever else. The Legacy, the Great Crusade, um, all Imperialist Militia Grenadier Squads, Militia Command Cadres, and Discipline Masters in a detachment gain Ballistic Skill plus one. A Force Commander in this detachment with the Providence increases its initiative to five. So, I mean, you could combine these two, Warrior Elite and Legacy of the Great Crusade, and now you've got a theme where you're even more like elite with your elite units and whatever else. There's all sorts of other stuff. Some of the hits, I think, and I don't know, I guess I'd have to look more closely, but it seems like some of these are similar. Um, Alchem Jackers. All units with this provenance do not suffer negative modifiers to their leadership characteristic in the assault phase. And in addition, if less than half the models in the unit have been removed as casualties and a morale check made for it due to shooting in the, the casualties in the shooting phase has failed, they become pinned instead of falling back. Or if more than half of the models in the unit have been removed as casualties, then it must fall back as normal. If you take Alchem Jackers, you can then have the option to say, all models in this unit uh, with the Providence can be upgraded to have the Furious Charge special rule for 25 points per unit. 
some of the units get pretty big and so rules like furious charge can have like it can have a very very strong multiplicative effect in your overall whatever but uh, we'll talk a little bit about the stats i'm not sure that you're always going to be looking at this as a uh, as a melee list we'll have to see in addition there's other things like so for example um other provenances with multiple options armory of old knight all eligible models in a detachment with this provenance may upgrade las cannons to las guns to las rifles for no additional cost las rifles are heavy versions of the las guns and they've got a little bit different uh, stats on top of that you have options relic arms eligible models in an imperial imperialist militia grenadier squads and the militia command cadres may upgrade las guns to either volkite chargers or assault needlers may upgrade last pistols to either Volkite Serpent or Needle Pistols, and may upgrade Sniper Rifles to Needle Volnus, and Heavy Stubbers to Volkite Culverins or Needle Cannon at a cost of 30 points per unit, regardless of the number of model or type of weapons upgraded. So, I mean, like, lots of big, like, just here's, here's a big chunk of points. Everything in the unit gets better does a specific thing. Another example... For that armory of old knight is heir, heirlooms of past glory. A force commander in a detachment with this providence may exchange a power weapon for a paragon blade for plus 10 points and or a last pistol for an architect pistol for a further 10 points. So again, you know, just lots of additional options. Now there's other things you can do as well. Like you can have an abhuman set of militia, increasing strength but lowering ballistic skill, getting bulky and other things. You can have feral warriors where you can get chain axes on your guys. Lots of different stuff, and there's tons of them. There are 16 different provenances to take a look at, and you know, with two options, there's that's a lot of possibilities. Uh, one that I'm interested in for sure, something that I've been thinking about for a while. I have had these uh, uh, Krieg models just sitting in a box for like a while, and I've always wanted to do uh, turn them basically into militia for early siege purposes you know gas masks and whatever else getting getting messed with by the death guard etc so i've been thinking about you know putting together all those militia or whatever else but then trying to think about supporting them with i mean i love the lehman rust tank so another one that you can do is industrial stronghold that's a providence that a detachment with this providence may include up to two additional heavy support choices but these must be filled with imperialist militia lehman russes in addition, all Imperialis Militia Lehman Russ units selected for the detachment with this provenance gain the following option. An Imperialis Militia Lehman Russ unit may include up to five additional Militia Lehman Russ for 120 points apiece. It's important to note that in the standard rulebook, when you use a heavy support squad to buy a Lehman Russ, one heavy support squad is one Lehman Russ. So there's no option to expand it. So this provenance specifically allows you instead to take a lot of Lehman Russes which is cool. Specifically though, you can't take this, you can't take this with, uh, this one has a bunch of restrictions. Can't be done with unending horde, debased rabble, tainted flesh, ogre and cons, or ogre and conscripts. So just attempting to keep those things clean. I love the way that you can customize this. You can do a lot of different things and especially with some of the units they have here like beast masters. So you can have units where you're basically like got a bunch of raptors or uh, caimans. So everyone's like, Look out for the Sumpcroc models from Forge World. They'll be all gone soon. But, I mean, like, you can you can cater your militia to make them seem more feral world. You can make them seem more mechanized, more, um, more like, uh, professional soldiers, less like professional soldiers. Whatever you want to do. If you want to make them chaos, you want to make them seem regulars from an imperial world, a group of guys thrown together at the last minute uh, to try to stand in the way of 
the War Master, there's, there's options here. There's lots of options. And then finally, one of the things that I remember being um, surprised by in the last edition was the fact that the militia seemed really good at tar pitting things. And I want, when I build militia, I want to build, in a game that is about superhumans just laying waste to the galaxy, to a certain extent, the standard soldier kind of feels like the kind of person who's going to exist to demonstrate just how dangerous the space marines are. Militia, unlike the Solar Ox, they're not necessarily the super drilled uh, soldiers that were prepared for this sort of thing. And so I like the fact that there's lots of ways you can personalize them so they can feel like all the different places in the universe that they've been pulled from. But there's also a couple of rules that really make me uh, enjoy and appreciate the fact that they are designed to, I mean, they're going to be terrified running against Marines. So there's a couple of rules, and time will tell if these rules are too uh, punishing for militia players. I'm sure militia players, I saw at least one person who just basically said these broke the game, but I saw other people who said that they really liked them. Um, so the militia unit subtype, this is number three, by the way, for those keeping track. Um, I, the militia unit subtype a unit that includes any models with a militia subtype may only attempt to regroup if that unit includes at least half of the models that it included at the beginning of the battle, but not including any models that have joined it during play. If more than half of its models have been removed as casualties, then it may not regroup and must continue to fall back until it leaves play. Now, there are ways to put essentially commissars into this so that you can prevent things from falling back. You just remove more casualties and something stays there. So this is not going to just mean that if you have a 40-man squad and you lose 20 guys, you should just put those other 20 guys away as well. But regardless, we'll move on. A unit that includes any models of the militia subtype that is falling back and is successfully charged by an enemy unit is automatically removed from play as casualty, with no leadership being made or dice rolled. You know, I uh, I like this too. Like, you know, just the uh, the cinematic of this routed group of militia trying to run for cover. The Night Lords descend from Jetpack, and like, there's no way they're going to stop that. And the slaughter is whole and complete. It feels very appropriate, even though it might be kind of sad for us as militia players. Another one is that uh, a unit that includes any models that have the militia subtype, but not the monstrous or mechanic subtype that is locked in combat and then is successfully charged by an additional enemy unit must make an immediate morale check once the charge has been resolved and as part of the charge subphase. If this check has failed, then the militia unit must fall back as if it had lost combat with any enemy units able to declare sweeping advances only if they are not locked in combat with other units. Once this fallback and any sweeping advances are resolved, then the fight subphase continues as normal. So something to point out here that's important. If you have two tactical squads and you charge one into a squad of militia, and then you charge the other, then you basically can force them to check for um, check for leadership. Now, if you are taking, for example, uh, Alchem Jackers, and you are taking the plus leadership one, you still have a pretty good chance of passing that leadership test. But this definitely does give Space Marine players a way to avoid being internally stuck, because last edition you could have that problem. You were just in combat indefinitely and bogged down forever, which, I mean, does make sense, but also the idea of human militia just standing there endlessly to their deaths uh, doesn't make a lot of sense either, so I like the change, and I think that'll be fun. 
So admittedly, I'm not a militia main player for sure, and I don't see myself being one, but what I am going to do is take some Krieg models and put together maybe a 1,500-point force, maybe a 1,000-point allied detachment to use in a couple of games, especially for when we end up doing Siege of Terra games or, you know, scenarios or mini campaigns. I think that would be fun. Honestly, I think it'd be kind of fun to put together a list of tons of militia for my marine opponents and buddies just to mow through. Um, I think that would just be kind of fun and thematic as well. So maybe for an interesting narrative game. But regardless, I really love it. And I'm looking forward to digging into the rest of the list. I've always liked Lehman Rust tanks, and I'm not particularly sure how well um, they will do, but I'm interested in exploring them. For more on this, like I said, um, I am hoping to get a detailed run-through of at least the Providences up on YouTube sometime this week or by this weekend. So stay, stay posted to the YouTube channel. It's Ineptus Artist 30 k on YouTube and uh, subscribe, and then you'll get the notification when that pops up. Thanks a lot. So a little bit of an update on something regarding uh, content from last episode. You know, it's sometimes easy to tell how popular some of these segments are because of the, the you know, the, the impressive feedback I get, the amount of support I get, whatever else. And let me tell you just how much support there was for the discussion about the Leviathan last week. Um, you know, after all the time that I put into and trying to explain the mathematics of the Meltalance and how effective it was, do you guys know how many people reached out to me? Um, no, nobody, not one person. So... Okay, I hear you. I hear you, crowd. That's fine. Um, but I'm still interested in it. But hey, how's this for exciting? I was wrong. Turns out that it is not 66%. It looks like, based upon the formula that I was using was incorrect, um, it looks like it's actually closer to 55% chance. So uh, it's not quite 66 but actually 55%. And I'm going to learn from my mistakes and not actually uh, calculate that out and tell you why. But essentially, um, it has to do with reversing the statistics and numbers, taking a look at the likelihood of failure and subtracting that from one. And then um, because one is like a 100% chance to successfully accomplish it. And then you put the percentage of failure chance to the power of options that you receive, and then it comes up. See, I just did it anyway, fine. So you take the likelihood, the probability of success, which in this case, because we're trying to hit a 5 or a 6, means a 0.33. So a 33% chance, you subtract 1 minus, and then um, instead of the probability of the success, you actually look at the probability of failure. So for us then, this is easy, it's a 0.6 repeating. So one minus, and then in parentheses on your calculator or whatever, 0.6 repeating. Um, and then outside that parentheses, what you do is you send that percentage of failure to the power, to a power equal to the number of chances you get to do it. So in this case, it's one minus 0.666, et cetera, to the second power because you're going to have two dice. And so that sends us to a 0.5 repeating um, percentage chance, so 55% chance to accomplish that. So great. Uh, now you can all continue to not be impressed by that, which is fine because I wasn't planning on doing that, but we did it anyway. So there we go. The important thing, though, is that um, it's, still, it's still likely to happen, but I just wanted to make sure. It was bothering me that it wasn't accurate. 
And uh, thanks to Aaron, who uh, pointed that out to me, that we were doing the math wrong. He was on Discord with me and a bunch of other people trying to figure it out. And then later on, he found something. And so I was like, well, I got to make it right. Anyway. Okay, now we're on to part two of Zach's army list building for the fists. And we are going to move on to the stone gauntlet. So as a refresher from last time, the Stone Gauntlet is a right of war for Imperial Fists only, and it centers around the Phalanx Warder squads. These squads may be taken as troops choice in this right of war, and if they are taken in a detachment with this right of war, they have Line and also the Heart of the Legion's special rule. So, in addition to that, any model in the detachment with the Imperial Fist special rule and a boarding shield, which is in unit coherency with at least two other models that also fit these criteria, may reroll all filled invulnerable saves made from shooting attacks or attacks made during the fight subphase. The bonus may not be claimed if the unit the model is part of has made a run move, charge move, or a sweeping advance move in any player turn or is falling back. Any model in the detachment using this right of war with Legionis Asardis Imperial Fist with a boarding shield, which is in unit coherency with at least two other models, gains Hammer of Wrath 1, special rule for the duration of any assault phase in which a charge is declared for the unit that the model is part of, whether or not the charge is successful. There are a couple limitations that are pretty big, though. A detachment with this right of war has to select Phalanx Warder squads as their compulsory troop choices. A detachment using this right of war may not deploy models using deep strike or uh, deep strike assault, subterranean assault, or flanking. And units which must deploy by those methods are not allowed to be part of the detachment. And then the last one, a detachment using this right of war cannot take more elites and fast attack choices in total than they have troops in the detachment. Which I ended up being a problem for me as I was working this out. Um, I forgot it once and I couldn't figure out why. The, I knew I knew the list was wrong, but I couldn't figure out what it was. And that was it. So anyway, because of the synergy between the Phalanx Warder Squad, you get Line, you get Heart of the Legion. So you get a slightly better in Feel No Pain save when you're on an objective. It says a couple things for us. First of all, we want Phalanx Warder Squads because we have to have them. Um, we would like them to be... I mean, maybe not max size, but it wouldn't necessarily be bad to bulk them up a little bit uh, because the more of them that you can hold next to each other, the more you can benefit from that reroll of invulnerable saves. And then also bigger squads end up being bigger return on investment for things like apothecaries, which is also good. So, Zach, I know you are a big fan of Rogel Dorn. Ugh. Anyway, I know you want to include him in your army, and so I went ahead and put him into this list because I know you'll be playing it at least this summer sometimes, playing with Rogaldorn. So I think he would be decent in this one. So Rogaldorn, some of the rules that are important to know about him. Rogaldorn, Sire of the Imperial Fists rule, says that any models with Imperial Fists special rule for Legionis Astartes and character may use his leadership characteristic instead of their own. And any unit they are part of may add plus one to the total number of successful wounds caused for the purposes of the side having won a combat. So it just says character, and it's important to note that it's not independent character. So this means the sergeants are all leadership 10 in your Imperial Fists army, which is great. A plus one total to wounds caused by them is also really excellent because um, this list is going to sometimes seem to lack offensive power in some ways, at least the one that I came up with, because Phalanx Warders are kind of light on attacks. So having a plus one of total uh, wounds caused is not a bad extra bonus. 
In addition, Rogaldorn, at the start of the battle, you can choose one phase of the game and decide that that is the phase that Rogaldorn grants an additional reaction. So, I mean, if you're playing against uh, an army that is going to be, if you know you're going to be deep striking, uh, or if someone's going to be deep striking against you, you might select the movement phase. If it's a melee army, then you might choose the assault phase so that you can uh, overwatch more often. Or, you know, if um, if it's a shooting army, then maybe you choose a shooting phase so you can return fire one more time, that sort of thing. So Rogaldorn is pretty standard in here. Um, a 2-plus armor save, 4-plus invulnerable save. In addition, no attack may wound Dorn on better than a 4-plus regardless of special rules or strength, which is pretty nuts, pretty good. Any successful charge that targets Rogaldorn or Unity as part of always counts as disordered. This is in particularly good in an army kind of like this, where we are going to set up or bait out that concept of charges. Um, and his weapon is Storm's Teeth, which is a two-handed, murderous strike six plus, shred, reaping blow two, uh, sword. It's a strength plus two, so strike in the strength eight, AP two. Pretty effective, reaping blow is pretty good for kill and melee. And then he's got the Voice of Terra, which is a bolt weapon, which has a 24-inch range, Strength 5, AP 3, Assault 3, Rending 5 up. Rending 5 up on a bolter is pretty fun. Uh, it's already AP 3, so it's mostly for helping you kill Terminator types. Okay, now you're also going to include Fafnir Ran in here because, uh, I don't know, I just did. Fafnir Ran has a bunch of other cool abilities as well. However, this is, I guess, the thing to point out. If you do include Dorn, you miss out on one pretty big benefit of having Fafnir Ran. So that's something you might want to think about tweaking, adding, subtracting, whatever else. Normally, I wouldn't suggest for a, a fun game, including two special characters in a list. But, you know, if you're doing something that's narrative, it's totally appropriate, especially if it's Siege, which we're going to be playing this summer and into the fall with Horsey Heresy. Fafnir Ran and any models in the Legion, Breacher Squad, or Phalanx Warder Squads in the same detachment get a plus one to their weapon skill for the duration of any assault phase in which they successfully charge an enemy unit. In addition, an army with Fafnir Ran may ha has a, an extra reaction in the assault phase. So this is actually a really good Warlord trait, and in some ways it's better than Dorn's for this Rite of War because... One of the benefits of the Phalanx Warders is a plus one to weapon skill when you are charged. Um, but if you need to charge, you are giving up offensive power. And the the, the Phalanx Warders are good, but they're they're and they, I mean they've got nice rerolls and they have defen nice defensive bonuses, nice gear, but they don't necessarily have enough tax to really plow through something, and um, they also only have one wound, so they're not going to stand forever. Um, they can be whittled down eventually. So this is probably a stronger right of war for that than you could do otherwise. So Ran, in this situation, might be better to take as your warlord, which of course that means you can't take Dorn, because just to remember, if your Primarch is in the fight, he has to be the warlord, because of course. Now Ran does have some other abilities that make him pretty effective in combat, um, but it's not going to be a force multiplier like it would otherwise. So just something for you to consider. Could you run this without Ran? Yeah, you probably could. Um, just put something else in, get another character, or add something else. Just something to consider as you're altering or looking at your list. So what does the rest of the list look like? Well, a lot of it's similar to what I set up last time. Some of the similar elements is I kept the Castellan with the auto cannon. I kept the 
heavy support squad, which I know you have. I kept Leviathan, and I kept one Contemptor. I did take away their drop pods, because you can't have those in this Rite of War. We also still have, as I said before, we do have Fafnir Ran, but we also have a Huskarl squad, which we are taking as an HQ choice and not a retinue because of taxes on including one in the both, because this is going to end up going with Dorn if you keep him in the list. And it's exactly the same as the last time as well. Four power weapons, four solarite power gauntlets, a lot of Vigil Storm Shields, a real thick unit. You're also going to have three apothecaries, and that those each of those apothecaries is going to go with a Phalanx Warder Squad. So this is the thing I was talking about. I I was spacing. I, like, I knew that there was something wrong with the list as I was building it, because I ended up cutting a Phalanx Warder Squad for, for this to try to get it down because and currently the current list as it stands is 3220 points so something will need to be cut to get it down to 3000 um but the phalanx warrior squads just because i was wishlisting i was like you know what sounds good to me is a 15 man phalanx warder squad three of them have thunder hammers including the warder sergeant so four war, um thunder hammers total and um i didn't add up any extra stuff i didn't spend the points on melt bombs and although i could have but it was still pretty expensive. Those war, those Phalanx Warder squads are 395 points for 15 people with those upgrades. And so it gets really expensive. So if I was trying to cut this down, those last few points, I think basically I would, I mean, in here just for fun, I put both Dorn and Ran. I would probably cut one of them. Um, it's an easy fix to drop Dorn and get this down to under 3,000 points. You got to do a little bit more with Ran. But um, basically, that's the way I would run the list. Very similar to the last one. I will say, generally speaking, um, I don't like this list as much as the last one I did. The last one had some more variety, had some different stuff on the board. We saw some more units, and I enjoy that a little bit better. This is going to be a tough nut to crack, and it might be unfun for some people to play against, and or the phalanx warders might really underperform i'm not really sure how they do yet and i've heard mixed things from some of my friends in this list as it stands you're you're really banking on them to do work so uh, it will be interesting to see if they're able to carry that kind of weight now the next list next time we're going to talk about the templar brethren and we are going to put we are going to put sigismund in there and we'll try to include some of the other things that you have because we haven't added hardly any of your tanks. We haven't added hardly any of your other stuff into this list. So I'll try to consider ways to put all that together for you. And as a bonus, I'm also going to look at putting two of these lists together because I have a feeling that you're going to want to have a 6,000-point apocalypse list just in case something like that comes up in the future. Okay, more on that next time. All right, folks, it's definitely time. Time to talk about your favorite gunboat that looks like a walking boat. It's the Derrideo. So the Derrideo Dreadnought Talon is 205 points base for one Derrideo, and the Talon can include an additional one for an additional 205, but it's capped at just two. The movement is seven. Weapon skill and ballistic skill is five. Strength and toughness is seven. Six wounds, four initiative, two attacks only. Leadership nine, and a two plus save. Similarly, it's a heavy, it's a dreadnought. The war gear, it comes base with an anvilus autocannon battery. It's got a twin-linked heavy bolter, 
It has four Borealis air defense missiles, an, an adamantic deflector, and a helical targeting array. That comes base. As far as the rules, it just has Dreadnought Talon and Legionis Astartes. So you do have some options. You can do a couple different things with the main gun. You can swap out the autocannon battery for a Hellfire Plasma Cannonade for 15 points, for a Arachnus Heavy Last Cannon battery for 20 points, for a Volkite Falconet for free. You can also swap the Heavy Bolters with a Twin-Linked Heavy Flamer. The Heavy Bolter, I'm sorry, the Twin-Linked Heavy Bolter for a Twin-Linked Heavy Flamer. And you can then also change, exchange the Borealis Air Defense Missiles for an Aeolus Missile Launcher for only five points. So let's take a look at the basic ideas of what this is going to do. Now, the biggest thing with the Daredale Last Edition was the fact that it was effective anti-air because it could shoot flying units. And still, it does come base with that helical targeting array. So you're theoretically going to be able to use it for the same thing. So let's start with the Anvilus Autocannon. So the Anvilus Autocannon, range 48, strength 7, AP 4, heavy 4, rending 5 plus, sunder, and perhaps most importantly, twin-linked. So when we're looking at a Derodeo, which has a ballistic skill of 5, barring any situations like night fighting or whatever, you're hitting on 2s, but then the ability for that to be twin-linked as well means you're very likely to have those 4 hits. Now, Flyers can have all sorts of different armor values, but they're usually not as tough as some of the tanks that you're going to see flying or going around on the ground. So we don't necessarily need to hit that 14 marker. The Anvilus Autocannon battery can glance an armor value of 13 um, without rending. If you do rend, then you can penetrate it on... Actually, you can glance to penetrate on a 5 or a 6 for a 13. Most other things being like armor value twelve or something like that, then you're looking at a uh, you're looking at a roughly thirty three percent of the time you're going to hit that twelve, and more fifty percent if it's um, only eleven. Now it, this is also sunder, so you get to re-roll those failed penetrations, and like I said, rending is going to add an additional d three if while you are rolling your armor penetration you come up with a five. So the minimum result if you roll a five on your armor penetration goes from 7 to 12 to 13 with that additional dice for the rend can go up to 15. If you happen to roll a 6 on the rend and you add a d3 then you're anywhere from 14 to 16. On top of that though you know you again are getting a chance to reroll with a sunder so I think it's pretty reliable to say that you're going to be uh, threatening two hull points off most flying vehicles um, at least every time you shoot with this thing. Now, <clears throat> you do have the helical targeting array. This makes it a good use for interceptor, so you can be getting an interceptor shot on those flyers as they come onto the board, because again, flyers enter through reserves like anything else, and so they're particularly vulnerable to being shot. So um, this is a very nice gun, especially if you're looking at a meta where you're going to use the Derrideo to shoot at flying units really useful. Uh, you have Interceptor. You can do some work with it. The biggest thing, of course, is that it's the basic gun on the thing, so you're not spending any more points for it, and it is pretty useful. The next gun is the Hellfire Plasma Cannonade, and that is a 15-point upgrade. Now, this is an interesting gun because it does actually have, well, the Hellfire Plasma Cannonade has two fire modes. Both are 36 inches. The Sustained Fire Mode has Strength 7, AP4, 
heavy six with a breaching four plus. That's pretty good. Notice I didn't say gets hot because it doesn't get hot. Six shots with ballistic skill five. Again, you're probably averaging five hits. Of those, you're looking at roughly two and a half breaches. So you're probably going to, if you're shooting at standard Marines or Terminators or something, you're definitely going to be forcing a few invulnerable saves. Now the maximal fire is interesting also. Uh, maximal fire, 36 inch range, strength eight, AP four, heavy one, rending four plus, with gets hot, but also a large blast. So what's interesting to me about this is that it is not necessarily, I mean, usually when you see a gun like this, you think to yourself, okay, the, uh, the sustained fire is specifically for infantry, and the maximal fire is typically for anti-tank. And that's not necessarily the case here, because there are going to be some situations where you want to take instead the maximal fire. One, you're getting strength eight, so if you're going against terminators or any multi-wound models, that are, have the Space Marine profile, you're getting a chance to devil them out. Rending on a 4-plus means, uh, you know, it means something extra for armor penetration. If you're trying to penetrate something, take a hull point off of an important item. And a large blast, 5 inches, is nothing to scoff at as well. Now, it's only a 36-inch range, so you do lose some of the range that you would want otherwise. But still, pretty nice. Now, if you were going to use this depending on the purpose you want for your Derrideo, the Anvilus is probably going to be better at anti-air, at least when you're talking about vehicles coming on the board. Losing that little bit of range with the helical targeting array means that there's going to be a few more places that an enemy aircraft can come on the board without getting you getting a chance to react to it. The fact that the other one has rending five up versus breaching four up on its sustained fire or you know, just one shot rending for it means you're probably going to do more damage in that regard. So I would say I feel like the Anvilus is slightly better than the Hellfire Plasma for anti-air or shooting at incoming uh, vehicles in that way, medium vehicles. But the Hellfire Plasma Cannonade could be pretty darn effective against deep striking infantry. Jumping on the board and being able to drop a template on them, being able to breach on a four plus heavy sit with a heavy six if you're after that as well, definitely something worth looking at. Next one up is the Arachnus Heavy Last Cannon Battery, and this is a 20 point upgrade, so this is the most expensive upgrade that you can give the model, but still not terrible on its own as far as the points go. Now, if we take a look at the gun, it is also sort of compelling in its own way. The Arachnus Heavy Last Cannon Battery has the same 48-inch range you would expect, but instead of being Strength 9 like most class cannons, it is Strength 10. It's AP 2, it is Heavy 2, it is Sunder, and then it is also Twin-Linked and Exoshock 5+. Plus. Now, if you remember, um, Exoshock is something that comes into effect when you shoot something and score a penetrating hit. You roll an additional d6, and if the roll is equal to or higher than that amount, there is a second automatic penetrating hit inflicted on that same target. Um, and cover saves cannot be taken from that. So with a 5-up, you okay, so if you penetrate once with this gun, and then you roll again, and you roll another 5-up, then you get a second penetrating hit. Not bad. Now, the Arachnus Heavy Last Cannon Battery is getting two shots. It is twin-linked, and you are still, again, at that ballistic skill of five, so you're hitting on twos. You're pretty likely to hit twice. Um, you've got a decent chance against most of the things you're going to shoot at to penetrate with a strength 10 and a sunder. This means you are glancing land raiders on a four, and you are penetrating on a five or a six, 
as opposed to you know aiming for fives and sixes just to glance or whatever. Um, this is really nice. And Exoshock just adds another slight additional chance for more damage. Exoshock 5-up only being a 33% chance on that next roll. It's not something that you're going to see often. Um, de- certainly not every game, perhaps. But when it comes up, it'll feel good. And also, like I said, it, you're already AP2, so you can blow up any of those non-super uh, heavy vehicles. And Strength 10 is pretty awesome as well. The question becomes, is it worth the 20 points? Now, if you're going to be shooting at incoming if you're, if you're assuming the same basic role of the Derrideo, the question becomes, you know, is this so much better? What's interesting still about the Anvil Asado Cannon battery is the fact that while it's really cool to blow something up in one go, a lot of the vehicles that this, this um, unit is going to want to shoot at, you can just hull point them out and have the same effect. Now, um, the extra, extra shots from the Anvilus, the ability to re-roll from Sunder there and also having that rend. Um, The two extra shots in some situations might be better for taking down a vehicle like that on the fly as it enters and at a discount of 20 points. Now I guess it depends again what it is you're shooting at. If you imagine that the Derrideo is going to be pumping fire into incoming vehicles, incoming flyers, um, that's one thing. But if you're going to use this as a just a main offensive weapon and intercept when you can, you know, if you're expecting to have to take down a lot of consistent, very heavy armor across the board, then I think the Arachnid's Heavy Last Cannon is definitely something worth considering. Um, it definitely has more staying power than a standard Last Cannon. The biggest thing is that it is expensive. You're putting this on a Dreadnought. Um, you know, is it as cost-effective as something else? Well, maybe not. Um, it's definitely not broken, but it's also not bad. So I like this one as well. Lastly, we have the Volkite Falconet, and this is the free side grade. Um, the Volkite Falconet is 45-inch range, strength 7, AP 5, heavy 8, deflagrate, twin-linked, and pinning. So this is something that's interesting. Having pinning on there is pretty cool. Um, with deflagrate or whatever else, 8 shots, you can probably count on you know, somebody failing one save, getting an additional chance to wound again with deflagrate, and then the pinning means they're going to be required to take a test. Um, the question is, once again, is this better? Is this better than uh, the Anvilus? So interestingly enough, again, if you're just trying to shoot at, if you're just trying to shoot at planes coming in or whatever, we're assuming armor value 12 or 13. Uh, we don't have Rend. We do not have Sunder. But we do have is four more shots with the Strength 7 AP5 Volkite Falconet. So eight shots at Ballistic Skill 5 and Twin Linked guarantees you right around 7 hits. You can pretty standard expect to have about 7 hits with this gun. You should be able to. Those of you who roll all ones, I have nothing I can do for you. Leave me alone. Um, but most of the rest of you, you should expect about 7 hits. Now, there's about a 33% chance to glance or... to I'm sorry. Because you're looking at... If you're trying to roll against a 12 with a 7 you will need at least a 5 or a 6. So you've got a 33% chance to cause some kind of hull point. With AP 5, you're never going to get a vehicle destroyed, but you can cause a hull point and do something, okay? So of those 7 hits then, you're probably... I mean, you can expect roughly 2 hull points off of a armor value 12 side. 
you can only expect really one against something of armor value 13. So can you expect to take down a medium armor vehicle with this thing? No. You could do a little bit of damage, and if you position, you manage to get back armor or something, yeah, that changes things. But in this edition, because the owner of the vehicle has so much more control over which side of the vehicle you shoot at, I wouldn't count on it all the time. So you are not going to be just wrecking vehicles with the Volkai Falconet. So let's compare that then to the Anvilus Auto Battery. So four hits guaranteed. Well, we're just kind of assuming. Again, you won throwers. Leave me alone. The Auto Cannon is still strength seven. So um, we're still trying to roughly have the same sort of thing happen. But remember, because we have rending here, we before we needed a five or a six to glance one of these vehicles. And the autocannon still only is AP4, so it similarly is not going to be exploding vehicles left and right. But what's important to remember is that when you have rending five plus, a five is not a five. A uh, five on this gun is a seven plus a five, six, or a seven because of that rending result. And if you roll a six, it's actually a seven plus a seven, eight, or nine. Unfortunately, that really doesn't matter like a whole lot because um, you're still only effectively glancing. Yeah, you get to roll on the table and you might cause a small annoyance to your opponent, but again, it's not extra damage. You would imagine that where this comes in then is actually through the application of Sunder, which is going to allow you to re-roll failed armor penetration rolls. However, this is the interesting thing. You have four shots, and you're looking at 33% of them penetrating, so 33% of, of four is a little bit over one, but not two, not even close to two. So then you take those other three dice and roll them again, and you get uh, one more. So here's the deal. The autocannon is about as effective against armor value 12 and 13, while the autocannon is much more effective against armor value 13 and 14 because of its ability to rend. Oddly enough, because it can't penetrate and cause a vehicle destroyed, it is exactly as effective as the Falconet against armor value 12. Just a little silly game of the numbers. Well, let's talk about the two of them now compared to infantry. So if you're shooting a regular squad of Marines, presuming that nobody has an artifice or armor save, with the eight-shot Falconet, Seven hits is going to result in roughly 5.8 wounds, so we're talking five or eight armor saves by your opponent, and they will fail. The math is 1.9, so you're talking one or two failed saves. Of those, then, you get to re-roll at the strength seven, so you're still wounding on twos again. You got a really good chance to cause them to take another save, of which they only have a 33% chance to fail, but you might get three kills out of this thing. Not terrible. And don't forget you're causing a pinning test. If it's the Anvilus Auto Battery we're talking about, the four hits should translate into roughly 3.3 wounds. Of those, some are going to be rending, which is going to cause to go to an invulnerable save or a cover save. Um, so you might be looking at one of those, and then you're looking at maybe two regular armor saves. So honestly, the two become very close. The biggest thing is that the Falconet actually has the ability to cause pinning and deflagrate so that it can spiral out of control if, you're, if your opponent's dice become not hot. So which is better? Well, it really kind of depends. Like I said before, if you're bringing the Derrideo for an anti-air roll, 
um, which is classically what it had been for. You're building it because you like the box and you like the helical targeting array. Then um, it can intercept um, and pretty pretty actively do real harm to medium chassis flying or even you know medium chassis vehicles. Against infantry, it's a bit of a wash. Probably the Falconet is better because of the ability to cause pinning and will probably on average do just a little bit more damage in that regard. Now, if we're just looking at that for the side grades, now the last cannon is pretty good as well. Two shots, the ability to exoshock and strength 10 means that it's gonna put some big holes into your opponent's heavy armor and also cause some pretty serious hurt. I mean, it's still last cannons against, you know, like uh, dreadnoughts. Because it's strength 10, it's gonna wound Leviathans on a two. That's nothing to scoff at if you're in a Leviathan heavy meta. Um, the plasma also has its place. The large blast strength eight and a rending four plus is pretty sweet. And six shots without get hot um, for trying to peel or pick off straggling small squads of power armor or artificer armor equivalents. It's not bad. Now, the biggest thing is what are you, what are you trying to do for it? I don't think there's necessarily a bad choice on these main guns. I think they all have their places in play. Good news for my friend Dark Apostle Ben, who just got a Daredale with literally all of the options and magnetized it. Way to think ahead, Ben. There's two more upgrades we need to talk about. Well, I guess we can talk about the Heavy Flamer or the Heavy Bolter as well. Essentially, this is a lot easier one. Um, take the Heavy Bolter. <laughs> Why do you want this thing close enough to use Heavy Flamers? Are you a Salamanders player? Do you just like Flamers? If so, take the Heavy Flamer. Otherwise, no, obviously, take the Heavy Bolter. End of discussion? End of discussion. Okay, moving on to the uh, missile options. You can have the four Borealis air defense missiles, they come regular, or you can have an Aeolus missile launcher for five points extra. So the Borealis air defense missiles are 48 inch range, they are strength eight, they are AP two, they are heavy one, they are sky fire, which means you, know, you can target things in the sky, go figure. And they are guided fire, which means that you need range, but you don't need line of sight. They're also one shot. So you have four of them. You can use four of them. Now, this combined with, you know, especially, again, if you're thinking about the Anvilus autocannon, this plus that means that uh, this gun can do, or this this unit with the, with the Borealis air missile defense can do some serious stuff against flyers. I mean, admittedly, you're using it for one shots or whatever else, but strength eight AP2. AP2 means you can technically, if you get lucky, uh, cause a, uh, a vehicle destroyed option. So here we go. 48 inches um, and line of sight not required. So if your opponent it does get sneaky and does pull off to the side, take it out of line of sight of your Derradeo in order to keep its flyer alive, then you can just pop these guys off and uh, have a little bit of fun as well. Not bad at all. The Aeolus missile launcher is interesting in a different sort of way. Uh, definitely targeted towards, or geared towards something else entirely. It's a 60 inch range, strength six, AP three, heavy three, pinning, and guided fire weapon. So if you were thinking more anti-infantry, if you were thinking, um, you know, the Falconet or perhaps the Plasma, then I could definitely see taking this instead. What's interesting about pinning this edition is that every weapon that causes pinning requires a pinning check. So if you manage to hit someone with your Volkite, 
and they cause a wound with that. And then you hit them with the, um, the Aeolus missiles. Then they take a second pinning check. Pretty nice ability to try to, I mean, not guarantee, but to really work towards assuming that you are, in fact, going to cause a pinning test. Doubling it up, multiple pinning tests from the same unit, pretty nice. 60-inch range is huge. Strength 6 AP 3 means that if power-armored things drop in intercept mode, then you can drop three of these into the lap of whatever squad you like and force either a sergeant to tank it on their 2+, or, you know, cover save and vulnerable save, that sort of thing. Not bad at all. For only five points, it's so cheap. It's just kind of, I mean, it's what you want to do with it. It's what you brought it for. Essentially, if you don't see people playing flyers, this is the one you're going to take, probably. I don't know. Um, the other one has uses as well, and even though there's only four shots on it, I mean, a four-shot weapon, strength eight, AP two, theoretically means mm, three dead multi-wound models with a two-plus save, sometimes, if you're lucky with the invulnerable saves your opponent takes. I don't know. There's lots of ways to look at it. Ultimately, though, I think I like the Derradeo. I like all of the options that you have for it and the fact that you can do a couple different things with it. I think there are multiple options and you can kit it out in different ways. You can make it a pinning monster, which would be fun. You can make it the anti-air uh, threat or whatever. I'm, nobody's using flyers in my local meta, largely because I think everyone's like bummed out by the fact they can just get shot off the board by anything with an augury scanner. Um, although, admittedly, you know, the Derradeo is the one that has Skyfire, so it's not just being snapped at. Regardless, I think this is definitely a, a kit that's worth having for a lot of different forces, even if it's just something that you keep in the stable for when it is necessary and when it is needed. I've got one also sitting in a box at home that I'm trying to decide if I want to put it in for my Iron Hands or something different. I wish I had more heavy support slots for my... Terror Assault that I'm trying to work on with the Night Lords, because I'd love to put this in with that and probably make it the pinning monster variant just for fun, but alas, it's not meant to be. I think ultimately the way to look at the Derradeo is that it's a fun model, it is useful in select situations, and it's a good idea if you're a fan of it to pick one up for your force. But it's not necessarily going to be broken or overpowered to the point where, like its other Dreadnought cousins, it's not going to cause the kind of feel-bads that you would expect and so I think you can include them pretty safely and confidently and not be worried about, you know, you're not making an unfriendly experience for your opponent by building this model. Is it the best at what it does? Um, probably not. There is the very specific role of anti-air, which it is going to be good at, but there are other things that can do that as well. So it's not a must-take by any stretch of the imagination, but it's definitely fun. And consider it. Well, that's going to do it for 13, folks. Looking forward to getting back onto YouTube here in a little bit with you all and um, more content coming forward. Also going to be releasing a little mini campaign that we would like you to take part in as well. Check back here sometime soon for information about that. Also, I recently joined TikTok. How exciting is that? I have one TikTok out. It's an to start as 30K. You can find me there. I feel so cool and hip. Um, I should say words like mid and cap'n and bussin. Now I'm, now I'm one with the youngins again. Take care of yourselves, enjoy your hobby, and we'll talk to you soon.